wonderful. Let's uh, turn over to Matthew 26. Let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to release revelation on us tonight. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. We want to fall more in love with you, God, just like Kevin. We want our hearts to come alive in love, alive on the inside. So God, I'm asking, release your presence. We really want to live this way. We, we want to live this life abandoned unto God, totally abandoned. So I'm asking you, Lord, release the spirit of wisdom and revelation in this house. Would you pierce our hearts with truth? Would you let the word of the Lord come to bear upon us? Draw us into truth. Draw us into the revelation of your son and his great delight and desire for us. We want to fall more in love with him. Come, spirit of wisdom, revelation, come. Land upon us tonight. Lord, we love you. We love your presence. We love your presence. We love your presence, Lord. Wonderful. In Jesus' name, good. Everybody said amen. We, uh, last, the last couple weeks, we've been um, dealing with the issue of human trafficking and talking about overcoming uh, sex slave trade in our city. And last week we had a time of intercession for that. And it's been good. And I believe many of us have been touched and gripped over those issues. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll encourage you just to get grab the CDs out of the CD kiosk that's in the cafe there. Um, before that, we were, on, uh, we were in the middle of a series on the bridal paradigm, talking about God's uh, desire and delight for his people as a bridegroom God. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and continue in that series, we're actually on part three now, um, and we took a two-week break for the human trafficking issue, but now we're going to come back, come back to the, the, uh, the bridal paradigm and talk about that weeks. And uh, I want to give just a catcher-upper for, the last, uh, for those who weren't here and, and, and weren't around. The, uh, the bridal paradigm, it is a lens or a mentality by which we look at the kingdom of God. And it is the idea that God is a bridegroom God who loves his people, and his people are a bride to him. And that's the picture that he gives us. And so when he thinks of us, he's looking at us through a lens as a bridegroom, and we are to look at him as a lens uh, with, with a bride's mentality. The way a, a bride would look at a bridegroom is the way we're to look at him. And so um, we get a little teaching on that from time to time, but we don't really go deep into it. And my thing is this, that I believe the bridal paradigm, it's one of the most essential teachings in the scripture. It's all through the Bible. It's uh, established from Genesis to Revelation. And it's one of the most essential teachings for us to have so that we perceive God rightly. And many uh, are born again, yet they stand aloof and in fear and they stand distant from God because they don't have a right uh, comprehension of the way God thinks about them. 
It's just as simple as that. They don't see God the way that God truly is. And so because their knowledge of God, their understanding of who God is, is um, twisted or, or uh, imbued or shaded, they don't rightly relate to God. And so then as a result, when it's time to be intimate with the Lord, they don't have uh, a depth of intimacy. They have, you know, uh, little portions of time where they're intimate. They don't have a, a bridal relationship. And, they, and when they hear the voice of the Lord speaking, many times they hear it through a lens of, of anger or a, a lens of, you know, dissatisfaction. And, and the entire time the Lord is trying to speak to us in, in the way that a bridegroom speaks to a bride. One that's radically in love and affirming and, and, and is kind and affectionate and burning with desire and longing. And so uh, we're doing uh, this series to try to establish a little of that mentality because you don't get it uh, by me telling you. You get it by taking these concepts to prayer. In fact, virtually everything we do, all the preaching that we get, when we sit and hear someone proclaim to us, it's like going to the restaurant and hearing the menu. You know, if we, if we went to the restaurant and said, hey, could you just read me the menu and read me the ingredients? And, and the guy goes, sure. And he reads all the appetizers and all the entrees and he reads it right on down and we go, mmm, that's so good. Thank you. And we leave. Yeah, I mean, it sounds good, but we've actually never eaten. <laughs> And we don't feed on the, on the word by just simply hearing somebody read us the menu. We feed on the word by actually going ahead and ordering it ourselves and actually chewing it up and uh, digesting it ourselves. And that's how we actually uh, go into the revelation of the word. You know, the idea that, well, I had to leave that place because I wasn't getting fed. Well, I mean, I, I appreciate and I understand what you're saying, but the truth of the matter is the guy in front is really just reading the menu and, and it's really, there's, there's a, uh, a bit of a responsibility upon us to actually chew and digest that word so it comes alive in us. And so uh, that's what I'm saying to you about the bridal paradigm. You can hear me read the menu about how wonderful it is, but it won't ignite in your heart unless you take it to the place of prayer. Uh, and I always say sprinkle in a little fasting. It just always escalates and, 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 and accelerates the process. And revelation blooms in your own heart, and then it comes alive to you. And so... Uh, that's where we're at. We're, we're, we're wanting to get a lens of God's mentality toward us. And so the first week we talked about Adam longing and aching for a partner. And we gave the examples of uh, when he was naming all the animals. We found out that that didn't take place in an afternoon for, because for him to name every single animal that's in the fossil record and every bird that's in the fossil record, if he spent just a short amount of time on each one of them, like three minutes, it would take him a minimum of two and a half years if he worked ten hours a day. And so, we found out that the Lord said, I'm going to make you a helper, and, he's going to, and this helper will be comparable to you, he'll be one like you, or this helper will be one like you. And so Adam goes from that word, and then he names animals for two and a half years. And don't you know, at the end of that two and a half years, Adam was ready for a helper. He was ready for one that was like him, that he could put his affections on, that one that he could connect with in partnership. He was, he was longing to be able to give love. And all he had was animals. The best animal around was so far inferior to his desire to be able to give love. And then the Lord puts him to sleep and pulls from his side a rib and makes woman. And so we see in Adam this picture of longing. And the Bible tells us in Romans 4 that, that Adam was a picture of Jesus. 
longing and, and desiring a partner as Adam was, Jesus longs and desires a partner, his bride. So that's what we found out the first week, that this is something, the bridal paradigm isn't some kind of um, sort of side fringy thing. It's actually in the onset of, of uh, human creation. And then the, the next week we talked about how God makes everything after its own kind. And he went through and he made all the animals after their own kind. And they reproduced after their own kind. He made the, the uh, plants and the trees after their own kind. And they bore seeds so they would reproduce after their own kind. And, and God makes all the animals and then God makes man. And he's got this pattern in which he does things, prototype and archetype. And so he goes and says, I will make the prototype and then I will produce the archetype, the, the one that comes from its image. And, and I, I talked about the, the, how the angels perhaps could have seen that and been like, okay, so here's a, another prototype. Where's the one that God's going to make from, from this man? And it clicks with the angels and they go, oh, wait a minute. This man isn't the prototype at all. He's the archetype. He's actually made in the image of God. And that right in that reality that we are actually created in the very image of God, it proclaims and it embeds in our heart the truth of God's delight and desire for us. So all of creation is about God wanting to be in union with the one that he's made in his own image and likeness. That's you. He wants to be joined with you. And the bridal language, the bridal paradigm is the picture that he gives us of what that union is to be and what that union is to look like. Now, tonight I want to talk about Mary of Bethany and the gospel and how the bridal picture is uh, tied directly to the proclamation of the gospel. The bridal paradigm is to be tied directly to the proclamation of the gospel. And it's, it's very um, rare that we hear evangelists who proclaim the gospel all the time that we hear them proclaim it using the bridal paradigm. In fact, I, I don't think I can remember uh, ever being in an evangelistic meeting, including ones that I led, where the bridal paradigm was the message to get sinners to come to know the Lord. It's usually something like, you know, real subtle, like you're going to hell forever, and you better get down here because you're going to burn. You know, I mean, it's usually something real kind like that, which those are actually truths. If you don't know the Lord, yeah, I mean, hell is where those who do not know the Lord end up. But the reality of God's desire and delight for people is actually what draws the human heart. Fear might motivate me for a minute, you know, long enough to buy insurance. No, it's really true. Hey, you're going to wreck your car. If you wreck your car and you don't have insurance, you're going to get bankrupt because what if they, you know, have uh, hospital bills? Well, I better buy insurance. And fear will motivate you just long enough to get insurance, which is kind of how we've done the introduction to the kingdom. You're going to hell. You better get insurance. Come down here and pray a prayer and you'll get your insurance. Well, fear might motivate me long enough to buy insurance, but it won't keep me paying my bill on insurance. I just, you know, I got the certificate, so I'm, you know, I must be saved. But love will keep you in relationship with a man who gave himself as the sacrifice for our sins. He's much more than an insurance policy. 
He is our high priest, but he is our sacrifice. And love will compel me into relationship with him. And I won't treat him like a system of belief. I won't treat him like an insurance policy. I will treat him like what he is. God who is longing to be in relationship with me. And so the bridal paradigm, he ties it to the gospel. Now let's look at this in Matthew 26. I want to set up the whole story and work through this story of Mary of Bethany. I love the story of Mary of Bethany. I mean, it's just great. It's our story. Similar to the way that the Song of Solomon is our story, Mary of Bethany, her story, it's our story. It really is. She's a picture of the, of the different challenges that we all are, are to go through in Christ and that we will go through when we come to abandonment in Christ. So let's pick it up here. Verse 6. It says, When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now, John and Mark also record this, and they record that, that she poured it on his head and his feet. Okay, so just get that in your, in your mind. But when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. One of the other gospel writers tells us it was three, over 300 days' pay. That's how much it was. Over 300, the word's denarii. So that was worth a year's salary to somebody. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. But me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Verse 14, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? They counted him out thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. All right, let's set this up. They're at this man Simon's house. The other writers tell us that Martha is operating in her gift. She is serving. Lazarus is at the table. The disciples are all there. They're having a, uh, it's sort of a dinner party at this man Simon's house. Simon was, as in used to be, a leper. So they're in the house of a man who had been dying of the uh, AIDS of the day, but it was, I mean, at that time, leprosy just ate you up until you keeled over. Have you, you ever been to, anybody ever been to a uh, leper colony? I've, I've been there and seen people with leprosy and, and prayed for them, the ones that have it in, in remission. And it's, it's one of the most horrifying things you could ever see. It eats out the inside of the nose. The nose goes flat. It eats up the nostrils. They end up with, a, with a, uh, a hole in the front of their face. The eyelids get eaten away. And, and it's, it's, strange because, it's strange looking because the eyelids will be gone, but the, where the lashes are will be intact. They'll blink, but the eye will stay open. It's, it's, one, of the, it's one of the most painful looking uh, situations you could ever imagine. 
the, the, the nubs, the, the hands turn into nubs, the fingers um, are eaten up and fall off, and they'll end up with just paws for hands. And same thing with feet. It's, it's, one, of the, it's one of the most sad things ever. Uh, I remember being in, a, in a, a, a leper, it was a leper hospital in, in Mexico City, and I met this man, he was in his 80s, his name was uh, Mauro, but he called himself Maurito, little Mauro. And, uh, and he was the happiest little man I think I've ever met in my life. And I asked him, I said, why are you so happy? And he said, because my Jesus loves me. He said it in Spanish. He said, because my Jesus loves me. I went like, unbelievable. But he had experienced what it meant to live in the joy of the Lord, in intimacy with the Lord. And uh, he was going to go be with Jesus in a few years, and he was excited about it. It didn't matter that he had been eaten up with leprosy. So here they're in this house of this man, Simon, who used to be a leper. They wouldn't have been in his house because they wouldn't have had a, a live leprous person around them like that. They wouldn't have been in his house unless he'd been healed. So he'd been healed by Jesus is the idea. That's, that's why they're at the guy's house. So this guy with leprosy has been healed. They're having a dinner party at his house. And at the table is the guy that used to be dead. I mean, like, this is a good group of people here. We got disciples who do miracles, signs, and wonders. We got the guy that was leprous, you know, had the aggressive version of AIDS of the day. It's at his house, and there at the table is Lazarus, who was dead two months earlier. This is a cool party, is the idea. And they're serving, and and the way I think of it is, they're eating and they're enjoying themselves. And I, and I think of this as a sort of a celebration. There's the trophies of God's grace all around the table. I mean, can you imagine how you'd feel? That was the guy that was dead. That's the guy that was eaten up with leprosy. And look, we're having dinner. This is a, this is a nice night. This is a good night. So Martha's serving and, and they're hanging out. And Judas is there. And see, I believe, looking at, looking at the, the context, the time that this, this dinner was taking place, this was six days before the Passover in which Jesus would be crucified. Six days. And Jesus has a fondness for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And so, I, I mean, I think he's really getting a last, a last time together with them. And, uh, and so... I think the disciples are feeling this. I think they're experiencing this crescendo of good stuff happening in the ministry. Because Jesus' stuff, the stuff that he's doing is peaking. I mean, Lazarus just got raised from the dead within the last two months. And the stuff he is doing is, I mean, it's just going off the charts. The signs, the wonders, the miracles, the power that Jesus has been releasing, everything is hitting. All the cylinders are firing is the idea. We've got the trophies of grace in the house and, and, and I think the disciples are experiencing excitement in their heart. But the tension is that Jesus has been talking about this idea about his death. And it's clear, by the way, the disciples respond when he actually does get crucified. They don't have the picture of what was going down. They didn't, it didn't resonate with them. They did not know it was happening that way. And so it was as if they had heard Jesus say, uh, I'm going to die. But they kind of thought that was a you know, later time. It's, it's, and so I feel like they had this, this excitement going, but sort of this tension. Jesus is talking about his death, but things are going well with the ministry. Well, then you also have the other player in place. You have Judas. 
And Judas was a zealot. Now, that doesn't just mean somebody that's full of zeal. A zealot was an Israel, an Israeli nationalist. And what they were, the zealots were aggressive about seeing Israel come out from uh, imperialistic Roman rule. And so they wanted to do anything to get Rome out of there. And so Judas connects himself with Jesus... Because Jesus has got something going that's completely of another order. He's got power that's being released. He's got signs and wonders and miracles. He's multiplying, you know, bread and fish. He's doing the walk on the water thing. And he's, he seems to be an Israeli nationalist. He's talking about the kingdom. And so Judas allies himself with Jesus, believing that Jesus is going to be a ticket to revolution and the disposal of Roman imperialism in in Israel. And I think Judas is getting to the place where he's had just about enough. It's been about three years. Jesus is talking about dying now. He's not talking the language of revolution. It sounded real revolutionary on the front end when he was talking about the Sermon on the Mount. But now he's talking about his own martyrdom. And this isn't what the zealot wants to hear. He doesn't want to hear that the leader of the movement is going down. He wants to hear that we're going to muster our our forces and we're going to do something with power and we're going to take over uh, the, the strongholds of, of the Roman Empire that are there in, 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 in Judea. So, that's what's going on that night. Amidst all that, the trophies of grace, the tension, the excitement of the ministry, but the tension of not comprehending what's going to go on with Jesus' death, death, we're six days out from Jesus' crucifixion. In the middle of it, Mary... She does something absolutely like off of the wall. No one could have predicted what Mary was going to do. She goes and gets an alabaster box full of spikenard. Spikenard was pure perfume. It was spikenard is it just literally means unadulterated uh, pure nard. And that nard, it was, it was a pure perfume. Very, very expensive. A box, just a small box, a flask of it, was worth 300 days wages. Now, there's, there's nothing specifically that says why she had this, but commentators speculate, and I kind of buy in, that the reason why she had this uh, jar of perfume that cost a year's wages was because it was her dowry. It was customary for the women women of the day to give a dowry uh, to the man that they were going to marry. And it was actually, that dowry would go three different directions. A third of it would actually go to her own father, and then two-thirds of it would go to the the man and his father. And so it was customary for her to present this when she got married to her bridegroom. And so she goes and gets this alabaster flask of this extremely costly perfume. And it's strong perfume. It's not like, hey, put a little bit more on because I can't smell it. It's so, you know, like potent. You put a little bit on and it fills the room. And she goes and does the unthinkable. She goes and gets 
Potentially, it's her dowry, which I think it is. She goes and gets the perfume, walks in. Now, think about this. She's about to pour her dowry over Jesus' head. What do you think is going on in her heart? Jesus didn't say, hey, go get your perfume and pour it on me. I mean, her heart is racing. Her heart is beating out of her chest because she doesn't even know if Jesus is going to accept this. And she's going to pour out a year's wages. She's going to pour it on the ground. You know, it's going to end up on the ground, on Jesus and on the ground. It would be like you and I, what she's going to do, she's going to make a donation that they can't use, no one can use but Jesus. It would be like you and I saying, you know what, we want to give all of our uh, w- furniture, our house furniture. It's, it's, cost, it's, uh, it's about $30,000 worth of furniture. We want to go ahead and just donate it to IHOP. We go, great. Hey, you got a truck I can borrow? Sure. Bring, bring the furniture on. We'll use that. We'll do something with it. We'll sell it. We'll, praise the Lord. Support the prayer movement. And you pull the furniture up in a big old 24-foot U-Haul, and you unload it right out in front of IHOP, and then you douse it with lighter fluid and throw a match on it. And you go, there's my offering to the Lord. I go, what? What are you doing? That's what she's doing. She's going to go pour it over him. It'll never be used again. Her heart, I think her heart is beating out of her chest. I think she is in trepidation over, about, over, over what's about to happen. She walks in, Martha's serving, Simon, Lazarus, Jesus, the disciples. She walks up to Jesus and she begins to pour it upon him. She's anointing him in the manner that prophets and kings are anointed. Getting the, the anointing oil poured down over them. She's actually anointing him in the manner that a prophet and king gets anointed. What is she saying? She's saying he is the son of God. She pours it over his head. It goes down over his locks. It falls down over his beard. It's covering his garment. A little bit would f- change the atmosphere of the room. She pours out the entire thing all over Jesus, all the way down to pouring it over his feet. Some commentators make the point that this was a, uh, uh, it was like a symbol of Eastern weddings. Uh, that there is sometimes in, in Eastern weddings, the bride would pour uh, a, a, an oil, an anointing oil, over the groom as part of the wedding. Now, I'm not saying that they were married. That's not what the point I'm making. I'm just saying it's sort of a type of that. And she pours it out completely, and the disciples have a problem with it. Can you imagine? Judas is the first one that pipes up. He goes, hey, what is she doing? That could have been sold for 300 days wages. See, Luke 8 tells us that wealthy women were part of the main donation force to Jesus' ministry. They lived on donations from wealthy women. 
And, and Judas is the first one. He raises his voice and he goes, what's she doing? She's wasting it. And then the other disciples join in. And what do you think is happening in Mary's heart? It, it goes from beating so fast because she doesn't know if Jesus is going to receive it to now her offering is being disdained and she's being rebuked by the twelve. Like what is happening in her heart? You know what's amazing to me is that Jesus, I mean, he, he, he's pretty prophetic. I mean, he could have stopped them before they said anything. He could have interjected, but hey guys, you're about to say something dumb, don't say it. You really are about to make a mistake here. Don't do that. Instead, he lets it go. And it says when he realized it, when he recognized what they were doing, he says, leave her alone. And what he does, he rebukes their, their false spirituality. He goes, you'll always have the poor. Like, I appreciate the idea, but your heart is not even about that. You're always gonna have the poor. You can continue to minister to the poor. He goes, I'm really not going to be here in a minute. And what she's done is right. And he goes, she did it to prepare me for my burial. I believe this. I believe that Mary of Bethany understood that when she was going in there, that Jesus was going to be gone. I think she had the Passover. I think she remembered the Passover lamb. And she understood that he's the lamb that was going to take away the sins of the world. And she did it thinking, this is the time. I'm going to prepare him for his burial. I'm going to pour out this extravagant offering upon him. It's powerful. I mean, it's, it's lavish. It's lavish what she pours on Jesus. And he says it's good. You know, if that were her dowry, if that were her dowry, then she just forfeited her future. She just burned the bridge to being able to get married. She poured it over Jesus. It's like she said, all my hopes, all my dreams, all my desires in life, everything that I want or will ever want, it's right here. And I'm pouring it over you. It's powerful. I love it. I love the extravagance. Oh, that we'd be a people that love the Son of God extravagantly. Oh, that we'd be a people that would love him in a way that's worthy of him. That we'd be a people that would abandon ourselves with a life poured out. In one moment, she pours out her entire life on him. She pours our whole future on him. All that we'd be a people that live that way. Pouring our life on Jesus. 
the whole atmosphere of the room changes. One drop, you can smell it. She absolutely releases an extravagant level of worship that inundates the room with aroma. It becomes obtrusive to everyone else. Her love poured on him is completely obtrusive. No one is going to get out of there without smelling that. I mean, they are going to feel the effects of real worship. See, it was pure, unadulterated spikenard. It speaks of the, the purity of her devotion. It speaks of the authenticity of her heart. It speaks of the, the reality of what she was giving. It wasn't mixed. It wasn't with a wrong motive or a strange you know, thing going on in her heart. It was pure. And she releases it and it fills the room. Every person knew what had just happened. Impossible to miss. It was obtrusive and at a certain level it was like, can you turn it off? You know, the goal isn't to worship in such a way that you offend everybody around you. But the point is that when pure worship is released, it will change the atmosphere. It will influence everyone around. I love the little quiet people that come and sit in the prayer room. There's a gentleman, I still don't know his name. He comes and he sits and soaks for two to four hours, about three to four days a week. And I've said hello to him, I've just never gotten his name. And he is releasing incense. He's releasing a purity of worship that's ascending to the throne and it moves the atmosphere, not just in this room, but in our city. A heart that's engaged in love, poured out, releases an offering and a fragrance into the atmosphere that moves things. That's what Mary of Bethany was doing. In Song of Solomon 1, verse 12 says this, While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. I think the way that she got the courage to go for it is because she knew Song of Solomon one twelve. I think she knew it. She was a Jew. She knew the writings of the Old Testament. She knew the Song of Solomon. And I think she got hit with the revelation of Song of Solomon one twelve, and went, oh my gosh. And she knew he was, he was going to die. She knew the Passover was coming. And I think she said, I'm not just going to read this. I'm not just going to try to meditate on while the king is at his table. My spikenard sends forth its fragrance. I think she said, I am going to live this. I am going to live this. And I think that's what put her over. I, you know what I mean? It's like you're, you're going, should I or shouldn't I? Should not? Wait, I got a verse. I got a verse. And I think she said, that's it. I'm doing this. 
And I, I believe, you know, she was in trepidation and fear, sweating. I believe it was scary. She didn't know if Jesus was going to like it or not. She goes in there and she goes, no, while my king is at his table, I'm going to pour forth my spike and over him. Powerful. I love Mary of Bethany's story. She gives this costly, costly devotion. She gives away her future. It's the picture of us. When we say yes to Jesus, we're pouring out the rest of our life. He never asked anybody to embrace him as Lord and keep charge of the rest of their life. He never asked anybody to receive salvation and deliverance from sin thinking that they would hold the reins of their life and their future. This picture of her pouring her life out and giving her future away, it's exactly the gospel. When you come to Jesus, you say yes, and you let go of all that you have in front of you. You sell it out completely. And that's what she did. And the thing about it is, when we offer an offering of pure worship, it automatically draws criticism. It automatically draws disdain. It automatically causes people to, you know, furrow their brow and look at that and say, what is that? What is this extravagance? What is this waste? Why would you take your life? Why, Kevin, would you take the rest of your, you're retired why would you take your life and sit in a room? What a waste. Why? You're 20 years old. You're 22 years old. You just got your college degree. Why would you waste your life pouring it on Jesus? I love what he says. Leave her alone. Leave her alone. The word, it's, it's like he says, the, it's like he's saying, the words you're saying right now are so foolish because <laughs> you don't have the picture of what she's do- doing. You don't have the revelation, so just stop. Let her be. Let her pour this out over me because it's good. It's right. Remember, she was the one that had chosen the one thing that mattered. And how thoroughly did she choose the one thing? I mean, how thoroughly did she choose it? She gave her entire future. Ah. It always draws disdain. It all, extravagant worship always draws criticism. And it's not just from the wicked. It's not just from somebody like Judas. It's not just from, you know, Judas is, he's wicked in heart and he's religious. So it's not just from like the lost and the religious group. You know, we want to sort of do our wild, charismatic worship of God and go, yeah, the religious people. And we think of somebody that does it, you know, with liturgy and we go, oh, they're religious and they just can't handle my worship. No, no, religion can be found right next to Jesus. 
Because when Judas starts mocking her and disdaining her, the disciples all join in. You know what's amazing? Once we get familiar, once we get familiar, we lose the edge of who it is that we're falling in love with. To even the point of criticizing one who's newly in love. And there they are, and they don't have the revelation she's got, and they criticize the one who'd chosen the one thing that was needed. The ones that were closest to Jesus. They were the guys. I mean, they had moved from being just passing out bread and fish, they'd moved from that to actually doing the signs and wonders. Even the demons had been subject to them. In Jesus' name. They, they had done everything. They had released power, and they were now being seen as something unique. And they were criticizing love. Oh, it's such a word to us that we would live fresh. I mean, just live alive. Just live fresh and not criticize the one that's got the new touch. You know what I'm saying? We might not like it. It might be obtrusive to us. But I tell you, when it's offered with a pure heart, he loves it. He loves it. I was thinking about how intimate of a thing that was that she did. I mean, can you imagine? There's all these people around. She walks up to him, and she's in his hair. Like touching his hair. And touching his feet. I mean, if you didn't like the smell, you would definitely not like the way that she just trampled all over the cultural norms. She's, all, she's touching his head. She's wiping her hair on his feet. I mean, that's outrageous. You know, and, and Jesus... That's not when he said, get behind me, Satan, you know. He goes, no, leave her alone. This is right. I, that's, that's outstanding. I'm, I'm stunned. And I think when Judas saw this, he saw this woman touching Jesus. And pouring hundreds of days' wages over Jesus. And Jesus doesn't stop it. He encourages and affirms it. I think Judas just, he just said, no, it's enough. I, I can't, I can't go along with this agenda any longer. And Jesus said, no, no, she's really preparing for my burial. And I think that was just enough for Judas. He goes, all right, it's over for me. I'm out. Because it's right after that, he goes to the chief priests. It's right after this encounter, he goes to the chief priests. He sees the extravagant worship. He sees that Jesus is not going to start a revolution. He's, he's, he's bent on being a martyr. And Judas goes, okay. He wants to be a martyr? No problem. I'll help it along. 
And I think Judas got offended with that worship and that extravagant, lavish love poured on Jesus. And he just he had, had just about enough. And that's, what, that's the seed that, that bloomed into treachery and, and treason, and he sells Jesus out. Offense with the extravagance of love. And then Jesus makes this statement. He says, wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. And I think that's, that's astounding. Because in that one moment, Jesus ties together the idea of the bridal paradigm with the proclamation of the gospel forever. Because we see, through what Mary did, a, a, a very clear picture of the bridal paradigm. A, we see a woman giving her dowry to a man, pouring out lavish love and affection on God until her life is no longer hers. It's totally his. And Jesus makes the comment and says, this what she did will be sown into the truth of the gospel. And so the bigger point that I'm making, beyond even the story, which is fascinating, is that Jesus was strong enough on this act of devotion and love to tie it to the truth of the gospel message. See, when you got born again, you got betrothed. Just like Mary, and in a very symbolic way, she betrothed herself to Christ forever right there. When you got saved, you got married. And the act of extravagant worship, the costly act of love, joining herself to him, is what we are to do when we say yes to him. We join ourselves to him forever. This is not a fire insurance reality. This is the reality of giving ourselves in bridal love to Jesus forever. I love her story. I love the way this is. And I love the fact that this is such a massive point that Jesus says this is tied forever to the proclamation of the gospel. So then it immediately brings to me and I say, okay, so when have I ever actually heard that preached in the message of the gospel? I've never heard a gospel presentation Where the point was extravagant love and devotion like a bride to a bridegroom. I want to propose to you that the message that the world needs to hear isn't some kind of souped up, cool, slick gospel thing. Isn't another nice gospel presentation that the world needs to hear the gospel with the truth of the God who is so radically passionately burning in love with them that he loves them even in their weakness, even in their darkness, 
even in their sin, for God so loved the world. I want to propose to you that if we haven't heard the bridal uh, paradigm, the, the message of the bridegroom God burning in passion and love, if we've not heard that in the gospel presentation, then maybe we haven't heard the entire gospel. If our entrance to the kingdom of God is not about the God who's ravished and, I mean, head over heels, burning in love for a people, if that's not our entrance, what have we joined? What God have we given ourselves to if he's not burning for you? Oh, that we'd be a people that understand and comprehend God's burning heart of desire for his people. We would see Jesus as the one that doesn't mind oil being costly oil poured over him. Oh, that we'd live like that all day. That we just live that way. Pouring it out. I want a life poured out. I want to live while the king is at his table. So you know the revelation of Song of Solomon 1 is this. That the king's table is the cross. It's the gospel table. It's the cross. It's all that he provides for us in redemption. The table of the king is the inheritance of his people. When we get to sit at the table of the king, we we get to join in to the inheritance that he spreads before us. And that inheritance is bought through the cross. So staring at the king at his table is the revelation of the cross. Mary of Bethany stares at Jesus at the table and gets the revelation, the cross. She falls in love. See, when we see the cross, like Mary saw the cross, that's what she did. She saw the cross. She was preparing him for his burial. She knew he was going to die. When we see the cross, we'll fall in love. When we see God slain, we'll fall in love. When we see God tortured by men, we'll fall in love. When we see God beaten to the place where we can't comprehend the way he looks, we fall in love. He gives his face to those who rip out the beard. He gives his back to those that swing the scourge. When we see the God that humbles himself to be destroyed and tortured by humankind, we fall in love. We pour our lives out. God that's burning in love gladly embraces the cross so that a people touched with love, gladly pour out their lives. That's how it's supposed to go, beloved. That's how we're supposed to live. It's the parietal paradigm of the kingdom of God. God loves his people. And he wants a people who will love him extravagantly, pouring it all out Wherever this gospel is preached, what she's done will be mentioned as a memorial. It's good. Let's just stand.